Empire. Called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today it's a pleasure to have with us Joe Lockhart. I, I told you, Joe, I, you know, I was just a kid when we, when we first met, but you will know Joe because he was uh, President Clinton's uh, press secretary. He was with the NFL for a while, I think, and uh, that had to have been interesting. <laughs> fun, fun and games. And with Facebook, I yep. believe. But as I said, I first met you on the campaign trail with Mondale in 1984. That's right. That's a long time ago. Anyway, we'll have questions for him when we get back. Our guest is Joe Locker. Joe, we'll be right back. Hi, and we're back with our, our guest today is Joe Locker. And Joe, this is uh, just asked a question, so I usually just ask the question. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, taking a look at the White House today, what are the Democrats doing wrong in going after President Donald Trump? You know, I don't know that they're doing anything wrong. I'm I'm actually a big supporter of Nancy Pelosi and her strategy. Um, there's, there's a lot of people uh, in the Democratic Party who are impatient. There's a lot of people in the Democratic Party who want to punish Donald Trump for his behavior. I think that Pelosi's got it right, which is you have one shot at this. You don't get a second chance at impeachment. Uh, you've got to build the best case you have, and people have to be ready for it. Uh, and she waited, and she waited. She took a lot of criticism, and then Ukraine happened, and she <laughs> knew it was the time uh, to pounce. So I think they've been very uh, – uh, I think she's been very smart. I think if – when the first impeachment calls came, you know, a year ago, if Democrats had gone then, this would have come and gone. And then Ukraine would have happened and Trump would have, Trump would have said, you know, we've already been through this. Right. Uh, uh, so I think they've done a lot right. Listen, they've got limited leverage with a White House that's stonewalling. They're not going to go arrest people. They're not going to find people. But they are going to move forward with this impeachment. They are going to pass articles of impeachment, and then it's going to be up to the Senate to decide what to do. <laughs> well, we know how that will go. Yeah. <clears throat> I'll get to that in a second. But uh, they have limited power to go after him. But there are many of people who are saying, why not uh, find those who won't testify in contempt of Congress, slap them on irons and make them come in and testify? Could they do that? They, they have the power under their um, inherent contempt power. But Congress isn't in the business of arresting and holding people. This is 2019. It's not the 18th century. Uh, that, uh, have you seen the White House? Are you sure about that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, 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 you, you, make a, you make a good point there. They're, again, they're not in the business of arresting people, and that would create the kind of environment that I think Trump is looking for. I think out of his heart, he wants chaos in this country. He wants anarchy, and he wants to take over. And if all of a sudden we start arresting people and people start taking to the streets and there's violent clashes and the president says, well, this is an emergency. I have to declare martial law. Our democracy has gone. Uh, and I think uh, that 
he looks at this and is looking for this opportunity. And Democrats would be very smart not to give it to him. Is this a constitutional crisis? It is a constitutional crisis. Anytime you have a president who doesn't recognize the separation of powers and the fact that Congress is a co-equal branch and the judicial branch is a co-equal branch, it is a crisis. The problem is the courts don't move fast enough and Democrats have to uh, strike while the iron's hot. So what I expect is they will move forward um, with or without the courts. They have, I believe, enough evidence to impeach the president on a wide variety of issues. And let's be honest about what we're talking about. An an impeachment is an indictment. Removal in the Senate is a different matter. Yeah. I mean, it's a two-step process. I think most people don't really understand that. They say, let's impeach the president, then we'll be rid of him. You've only taken the first step. And as we saw in 1998, as we saw as they prepared to impeach Richard Nixon, as you saw with Andrew Johnson, uh, well, we didn't see because we're very <laughs> I'm young. I'm not that yeah, old. Not that old. Uh, <laughs> close, got, but not I, that old. I got shoes that old. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but it is basically, um, you know, indictment is the best parallel, although it's, although it's not perfect. You're just saying that there's enough evidence to consider removal of the president. The Senate then has to do a trial. These, everything involved here is political. Uh, you have you can have a hundred legal analysts on TV talking about the legality of it. Give me one political hack who will explain to you what's going on, because it's all political. And the Senate, um, you know, it is very unlikely that they would vote to remove the president for for a whole bunch of political reasons. So why is he stonewalling so much? If he's got the Senate in his back pocket. And he does. I mean, Mitch McConnell, he's got a majority of the Senate. And I don't think I've known Mitch McConnell since 1978. I don't see him flipping on the president. So why is the president so upset? Well, I think they're hiding a lot of stuff. I mean, this is your classic cover up. We don't know what we don't know. And the Senate doesn't know what they don't know. And senators, as much as they have bowed to um, the royalty of Donald Trump, they also have to get reelected. They want to stay in the majority. There's nothing more miserable in Congress than being in the minority. Unless you're the vice president, then you're useless. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, you can be the vice president and be, and be useless. And, or it could be even worse, you could be Mike Pence. But, uh, but And you said that. I like yes, that. Yes, <laughs> yeah. But if this gets uh, um, in a material way worse for Trump, Senators have to think about their, themselves, and politicians are selfish human beings, and they respond to what they think voters want. Um, and the calculation could change. I don't expect it to change, but the White House is going to make it as hard as possible uh, to provide material that could change it in the Senate. Well, and and speaking to that, knowing McConnell as I do, I, I he was the first person in my <laughs> outside of my family I interviewed. It was a politician. And I remember what my my uncle, who had worked with him, said, and that was one thing you should know going in to interview Mitch McConnell is that Mitch is about one thing. And I said, what is it? And he goes, Mitch McConnell. So his self-interest being as it is, I could – then what you say makes sense. He he could flip on the president if he thought he wouldn't get reelected. Well, I don't. I'm not. I'm not, not sure that he, he will. Yeah, I'm not sure that he looks at it as as narrowly as his reelection. He looks at uh, Republicans across the board, and there is everybody has a breaking point, just like everybody has a price. And here here's the fix the Republicans are in, uh, which is why they probably will let Trump slide. 
if they challenge the president, the president will turn on them. Mitt Romney. You is think? Case. Yeah. The, <laughs> and this is, Mitt Romney's the pin, human pinata for Trump to tell them. So, yeah, and without Trump voters, there aren't Republican, there aren't that many Republican voters anymore. There's Trump voters, and they're different. Without Trump voters, Mitch McConnell couldn't get elected dog catcher. But he barely you, can anyway. Yeah, but if you stick with Trump, you're alienating 50, 55% of your voters if you're a senator, and you're making your voters make an awfully difficult choice, even if they don't like the Democrat. So it's an awful situation for them to be in politically. Ultimately, they will make a decision, you know, at some point. Uh, and my guess is they'll stick with Trump because that's the safest route. But they will make it based on their own interest. This has nothing to do with loyalty to the president. It has nothing to do with liking the president. There isn't a U.S. senator who's loyal to Trump and there isn't a U.S. senator who likes Trump. But they understand. I can testify power. to that personally. Yes, but they <clears throat> but they understand power and they like power and they want to keep power and that's what this is all about. What about being on the right side of history? What about country instead of party? What about just doing what's right? Well, that's is that the, too. Mr. No, Smith goes to Washington. No, that's that's where the naive Democrats come in. We, we, <laughs> there you we, go. We've got that covered <laughs> yeah. because we want to do what's right and we think government works and government helps people. And, you know, we do things like letting Merrick Garland, you know, twist in the wind and not, you know, shut the Senate down. And there is a fundamental difference between Democrats and Republicans. That's part of it. And there's a constituency for the Republican Party that Trump now has galvanized that wants an authoritarian state, that just wants someone, one person in charge to tell them what to do, tell them what to think, tell them what to go talk to their friends about and that's a bigger group than I think any American will, you know, wants to admit. Uh, and that's what brought Trump to where he is. And that's what he is counting on to get reelected, whether he will or not. is a whole other question. Well, that's one thing I always say is the Democrats have. I don't think they've come to grips yet with why he got elected or how to combat it. Um, and in watching the debates, <laughs> I remember speaking to Rahm Emanuel and Rahm said he, he thought that many of the I think he said all of the Democratic candidates were lightweight, that they don't get it. But I can tell you by talking to them, they still don't get it. Well, I think there's there, there's two levels to this. One is how you get the nomination. And the way, right. you get to, the way you get the nomination is in a series of building blocks. You have to get core constituencies to not just like you, to love you. If you've, you know, if you've got 20 choices as a Democrat, you're going to vote for someone you love, not, you know, a couple of people you like. Uh, and the way you get attention, uh, the way you can get cable news to cover you in the newspaper, is to push the envelope. So that's what's going <clears throat> on. I don't expect whoever the Democratic nominee to be talking the way we <clears throat> the way we heard, particularly in the first debate. It moderated between the first yes, it couple nights and the and the and the second debates, and I expect that to continue. Um, uh, but. Uh, I don't. I, I disagree with Rom on the level that these are a bunch of lightweights. I think there's a handful of serious good candidates in there. Who would but you say they are? I would say that Joe Biden is a serious candidate. I'd say that Elizabeth Warren uh, is a serious candidate. I mean, Bernie Sanders is a serious candidate. I don't agree with him, right. um, but he's a serious candidate. You know, I, I'm on the fence about Kamala Harris. If you know, let's let's see what she can do. Pete Buttigieg is the smartest guy in the field. 
can he overcome the fact that he's 37 years old and has never been in Washington? I don't know. Uh, but those are serious people. What about Andrew Yang? I, I don't think I think he's a serious person, but he's not a serious candidate for president. I think he's got some serious money behind him, though. Well, I think he'll know, be in longer than people think. No, he will be, and so will Tom Steyer, who's got some serious right. money. And this, the, but this isn't about who has the most money. It isn't about no. But the longer they can stay in, the longer they can appeal to that core that you were talking about. They they've got a, a greater chance of doing it. Yeah, I think the I think the longer um, what I'll call the fringe candidates stay in, the harder it is for um, the first tier candidates to look and appeal to you know the mainstream Democrats, right. middle Democrats, moderate Democrats. But that's you know, that's the system. You know, you you, <laughs> you 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 can't be president if you don't win the nomination. You can't win the nomination if you don't get more Democrats than the other guy got. I I get that, and watching the the debates, the thing that. I find is, um, and I'll be at the one in, in Ohio, and um, watching them, they are fighting over the same turf that they already own. And so there, I do know and have spoken with dozens, and I know there are millions of people who actually voted for Donald Trump in that first election that want a, another candidate to vote for and would vote Democrat. But when you come out and say reparations and uh, like Beto O'Rourke, I'm going to take your guns, they don't care what your health plan is, man. Their health plan is that 44 Magnum. And if you say you're going to take it away, they ain't going to vote for you. They'll, they'll stick with Trump. Isn't that a problem for Democrats? Well, it's a, it's just a problem for Democrats if Beto O'Rourke gets the nomination. I don't think Beto <laughs> O'Rourke's going to get the nomination. Yeah, I don't think and, will. You know, listen, it's, I think he um, screwed himself out of a Senate possibility too. Well, that. I don't think he's interested in running uh, for Senate. And I, I, I think there's a stronger candidate in MJ Hager. Um, I believe you know, you're right. Uh, yeah. Already in Texas. So, and again, I'm not anti-Beto. I think when I was at the NFL uh, going through all the stuff with the anthem, he gave the single most powerful cogent answer as to why the players had the right to kneel during the national anthem that I heard then and I've heard since. So I Which think- Which was- which was that this is America, and in America you get to stand up for what you believe in or you get to kneel down for what you believe in, and that's what the country's built on. It's not built on Donald Trump's bullshit. Well, Donald Trump would like – let's get back to that. Donald Trump would like you to think that it's about his bullshit, and he's certainly <clears throat> spread it. And I can tell you in that, in that White House every day, I have never met – and look, it was contentious. There were times when it was contentious. Like I said, it was only there a handful of times when Clinton was going through – his impeachment, you were there. People described you as irascible at one point in time. Uh, but it was contentious. But I, I've never been lied to. So I don't believe anything that they print, say, or do. And that's dangerous, is it not? Yeah, it's dangerous in a couple ways. One is, uh, in some ways, Donald Trump has been lucky uh, as a president. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we have not had a international crisis that demanded U.S. leadership. Uh, we just haven't, you know, we haven't had the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. Um, or the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Cuban Missile Crisis. Even, even the Ebola crisis that, right. that, that uh, Barack Obama so effectively led, you know, the worldwide effort against that could have been something that was catastrophic to the, uh, the continent of Africa and the world. Um, so we haven't had one of those. And the problem is, at some point, this president, my guess is, is going to need the country to believe him. 
and it won't. There's no chance people will believe him. I don't, I'm with you. I don't believe a single word out of his mouth because every sentence of every paragraph, of every page, of every speech he gives has a lie in it. It's the, it's all lies. Yeah, and, and you know, I don't care whether he believes it or whether he knows his lying. Who cares about that? I mean, it's that's not material. So at some point, you know, he's going to need that. He's not going to have it. That's why it's dangerous. Listen, I, you know, at the time that I was the White House press secretary, it was kind of a given that this was the most contentious relations with the press had been, at least since Nixon, and maybe more contentious because we had cable news and we had the, right. the, the birth of the Internet was going on right there. So there was a little bit of the, you know, 24 hour a day. It was contentious but respectful. And I never lied. I mean, I can sit here and, you know, I, there's no downside to me saying, listen, on this one day, yeah, I told a lie. Here's why I told the lie. I'm sorry I did it. Or I don't give a damn that I did it, but I didn't. And, you know, I, I, I knew that telling a lie would likely mean I'd be caught in it, which would likely mean I'd lose my credibility, I'd lose my job. I liked my job. I thought it was important to be able to tell the truth. And I think if you talk to the people who were around, there were days where, you know, we, we spent days yelling at each other. And at the end of the day, we went out and got a beer. Yeah. You know? And it was, again, I think the most important difference is it was respectful. I respected what they were doing. I respected the role the press played. And at times, I, I took a lot of heat from the president because I protected the interests of the press at times when he thought I shouldn't because they were being so unfair to him. Uh, and at times I agreed with him. I thought I would say to him, you're exactly right. But we can't all of a sudden just decide that the press doesn't matter, that it's not free, that we can, you know, that, or we can lie to them. It just doesn't work that way. Well, it I, does today. It does today. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, <laughs> me and Jim Acosta, both of us had our press passes pulled. It's, um, they have, kept others out. They kept Caitlin Collins out of an event. They have threatened others. Um, it, it boils down to, <laughs> I remember what uh, what um, Larry Speaks said, don't tell us how to stage the news. We won't tell you how to report the news. But this administration wants to stage it. Tell us how to report it. Critique us if we don't do it as they want, and then get rid of us if we don't show fealty to the president. Yeah, I think, you know, my view from the outside is they don't really care about what you do or say. They're yeah. so they're talking directly to their people. They don't need you. You're annoying. You get in the way. You ask stupid questions. You're disrespectful of the president. You should all be burned at the stake because they've got Twitter and they've got <laughs> Facebook and they've got the way to reach However many people are in the president's base directly without going through the filter of the traditional press. And, you know, we're going to 2020 is going to be a really interesting election for a lot of reasons. And it's really important for a lot of reasons. But one of them will be a test of does the traditional press still matter? Do you think it does? I don't know. I've, I, you know, I want to see what happens in the election, because if Donald Trump wins again, my conclusion is it doesn't. Because I think, you know, I, I, I was, you know, in an interview setting like this last week with the editor of the Columbian Journalism Review. And he asked me, like, you know, tell me about what the, what the press looks like now. <laughs> and, and I said, you know, in many ways, um, this is the golden age of journalism. 
I mean, I grew up when the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal competed for scoops every day, and one of them always had something. We're there again. You are seeing some outstanding reporting from newspapers, from uh, from uh, from the cable networks and the news networks, just really outstanding reporting. And the reality is it might not matter. It just it might just go into the ether and mean nothing. And 2020 is going to tell us whether it matters because— That's I, frightening, actually. It is. But the, but the press has done, I think, an important job of prosecuting— um, or holding the president accountable for the things that are untrue, digging up the dirt that they've you know tried to sweep under the rug, and giving the public a full sense of what this president is doing, what he's like, what the abuses are. And he still has a chance of winning re-election. And if, and if he does win, I, you know, I don't think it's going to be because the Democrats, you know, put up a bad candidate. Democrats will, I think, put up a good candidate. It'll be because the traditional guardrails in our democracy are destroyed. And one of them is that the press matters and what they report matters. It does matter, but I think the government is also, this is just me coming at you from, from the point of being in this business. I got into it, I, I blame the roots of it on Ronald Reagan. I, I say Ronald Reagan when he took over, um, I think it was Mark Fowler, who was the head of the SEC. Up until Reagan, everyone t- treated the airwaves as a public trust. Fowler became the head of the FCC in 1981 and said, no, it's no different than selling toasters. So media, they broke down all, they got, well, got rid of the fairness doctrine. They broke down media ownership. That's why you have Sinclair. You can buy as many properties as you want. They, um, there are media monopolies now that don't exist because Fowler treated it as, as if we were selling toasters. And the consolidation, when I got into this business, 80% of what you see, reader, here was owned by maybe two dozen companies. Today, 90, more than 90% is owned by, what, five or six? So there's fewer reporters to begin with. And, yeah, we're, we're trying our hardest, but that fake news stuff that he pitches resonates because there is a kernel, very small kernel, of what people see as truth in that. Well, what happened to the news business is it came a real business. Yes. It, it, you know, it wasn't a business before. I, you know, I grew up in a family where my parents worked uh, in, in television news and they worked for a money losing operation every year because it was the way in my family it was NBC. It was the way that RCA at the time, they'd lose $100 million a year on the news division as, as a way of buying goodwill for everything else they were doing. It was their civic um, obligation. Um and the government removed that impetus. And uh, well, they they removed the requirements. Yes. Uh, but what really happened is technology changed, and it's not all government. All of a sudden, you could broadcast from anywhere, anytime, anyone could broadcast, and you could make a lot of money doing it. The cost of covering news came way down, um, so much so that you didn't need as many people. It didn't cost as much, and you know it started with CNN. Uh, but continued with others, and then the Internet comes along and people realize, you know what, I can make a little bit of money telling people what happened today. I can make a lot of money telling people what they want to hear. And that's what, you know, you 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 nailed that one. You nailed that. And it's, you know, these these former money-losing operations are making billions now. And the one thing I, I don't know a lot about business, but what I do know is when someone's making billions and someone says, 
no, let's go back to the old way. They're, they're going to say no. <laughs> Dan Snyder. <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> the guy always picked perpetually last for kickball. But we'll, <laughs> we can talk about that a little later. But um, the, the, So you, you paint a dire picture. But I always, you know, the, the other part that I find frightening is the elimination of, of newspapers. The printed word. The printed word has saved many a civilization from despots. And um, now we're saying we've advanced past it. We don't need the printed word. But the result is going to be the same. I mean, I can walk into a court of law and I can show you my cell phone and here's the news. By the way, I can hack it. I can change it. I can, but I can show you and I have copies of newspapers from 1855. You can't hack it. You can't change it. It's the same. It's finite. It's what, and that kind of knowledge is is a thing of the past almost. Well, and it also, again, it, some a good bit of it goes to the technology. Um, it used to be that, you know, the, the, the lions of um, the newspaper industry would put out what they thought was the most important stuff. You know, what, what viewers needed to know to be educated, civic-minded, involved citizens. Well, along comes the Internet, and you can test, you know, in a matter of seconds what people want to know, not what they need to know, but they want to know, and what they'll click on and what they won't click on, and that's changed the dynamic in news because how do you be profitable in the news business? You have a lot of people click on your material. Is that in and of itself corrupting? No, because you can tell people what they need to know in a accessible and at times, you know, entertaining or at least non-boring way. Our people have organizations been corrupted by this and created by this? Of course they have. Of course they have. You you don't have to look very far. Uh, so, you know, I said... So it, Donald it, Trump has taken advantage of all that. Of course he has. But the, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be as dire as I think you think I am. I just want to look to 2020 because here's what could happen in 2020. Donald Trump is defeated. And the message is, well, you know what? You better treat the press with some respect because you need the press to build public support for what you're doing. And all of a sudden, some of these guardrails get built up again that, that have protected our democracy for 250 years. Um, so are you that, Democrats going to find somebody to beat Donald Trump? Yeah, we are. You know, and that, that per, it's not like someone is going to come off out of the wings. That person is in the race now. And, I, you know, you look at the polls and six or seven of them beat Donald Trump Pretty, well, pretty easily right we now. We looked at the polls. That was the case in 2016. Yeah. Well, I, you know what? It's It could happen again. Uh, but, you know, putting my dire hat back on, if Trump is reelected, you know, the, the idea that we've seen the dark underbelly of this country is absurd. We're going to see it then. Mm, um, yes. You know, and, um, you know, it's it's. It's going to be up to the Democrat to sort of frame that question. Uh, and it's going to be up to the media to treat this campaign more seriously than they did the last one. The last, you mean the Democrats? No. I, I think the, 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 I'm sorry, the, the media. Oh. The, I, think, I think the media saw Donald Trump as something that, that was as a this joke. entertaining character that was, was a quote a minute. And they treated him um, in a way— um, that uh, minimized his faults 
and, you know, maximized, you know, whatever talent he has. And, you know, we, we, we all got burned. I mean, listen, it's not the media's fault he got elected. It's no. 63 million people who voted for him. That's, that's who to blame. Well, and I think the Mueller investigation pointed out there's some other blame that could go around. Well, sure. I mean, listen, the 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 foreign interference um, uh, certainly had an impact. Um, you know, the way uh, Hillary campaigned had an impact. James Comey had an impact, you know, three different ways. Um, I think he feels guilty about that. I, I know he feels guilty. He should feel guilty about that. He got, and you know, it's funny. It's um, here. Here's I'm not in the business of defending James Comey, but I will defend him uh, to an extent um, on the decision at the end to put the uh, put the information out that the case was reopened. He knew that there were enough people in the FBI who hated Hillary that were going to leak it. Yep. And it would have been worse if it had come as a, as a leak uh, for Hillary. So, And I think he thought Hillary had it wrapped up. Now, all of those things, you well, know, maybe don't excuse she... him. It's just <laughs> yeah. a little bit of an explanation. Maybe if she had campaigned in Michigan a little longer or a little better. But that... No, I mean, listen, you can every campaign that loses, you can always go back and say, if you'd done this yeah, or, right, or that's if you'd true. done that. Um, that's true. And, you know, it's um, one of the great frustrations— and when I say the way Hillary ran her campaign, I'm not criticizing her campaign. I'm, I'm just criticizing the way the campaign uh, narrative got constructed. Hillary talked about issues all the time. Yes. And the only thing that would ever get on the news was, you know. Emails. Uh, was, or, or an attack on Trump. Yeah. They realized that they couldn't get on the air if they didn't attack Trump because Trump was attacking her every day. And he was setting the construct for the campaign. He framed with the, the yes. He framed the campaign. Yeah. And the media was complicit in letting him do that because, uh, one, it was easy, and two, the public loved it. Listen, I was working at the NFL at the time. We were losing hundreds of thousands of viewers for our football games, the iconic content in America, to cable news because people wanted to see what Trump got up to that day. Um, that That's real. I saw the numbers week by week by week. That... That's that's a problem. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about that. It's just ask the question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and we'll be right back. And we're back. And, Joe, I guess let me go back to what you were just saying about the numbers in the NFL. It The, the 2016 election almost played out. And I've heard it called reality TV. I've heard it. But it, it was a media event that drew in a lot of people. Did it you think it'll change the way campaigns are run? Was it a watershed event politically, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, I think it's a watershed event historically to have someone of Donald Trump's inexperience and character as president. We're he has character, this, or lack of <laughs> lack thereof. Okay, okay, um, I'll buy that. I mean, I, it's it's so unusual to have someone like that, and we're going to watch this play out not just for the next year and a half or five years. We're going to watch this play out for a generation. This impact is not going away. No, you're so right. So I think historically it's a watershed. 
from a campaign perspective, you know, campaigns are um, a very they they track sort of uh, you know human nature. People imitate what worked last time. So I think that you know the Democrats are all looking at okay, we lost last time by doing this. They did that. Let's copy them. So they won't they won't copy them in you know the oh, policies. Please, yes. Um, but I you know you'll see you know it, it's it's not the most innovative uh, industry in the world. Um, so I don't you know I don't think we'll see anything you know new. It's it's very rare you see something you know abs you know game changing in politics. You know maybe you know John Kennedy you know in 1960 changed the way. Like Ronald Reagan changed you know it's it's the great you mentioned Reagan before. The great story that um, the late Mike Deaver uh, used to tell was that when they watched the news, they turned the sound down because it didn't matter what their reporter said. The pictures told the story, you know, and you could have Leslie Stahl or Sam Donaldson saying the president today, you know, um, um, uh, you know, committed 14 crimes and, you know, fell over and collapsed. And the pictures would tell a different story that 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 Mike Deaver was orchestrating, um, and that changed things. And you know, maybe Bill Clinton in some way, maybe, you know, Obama. But the, the, politics doesn't change very often. It just sort of, you know, struggles from one side to the other, imitating you know whatever worked last. Well, and doesn't isn't a lot of well a lot of politicking these days. As I think some things have changed, and not necessarily for the better, but we have politicians picking their voters because we, the gerrymandering of districts. We have low voter turnout. People aren't getting involved. Are the ways to correct those two problems? Because, as many analysts point out, there are far more registered Democrats in this country than registered Republicans. Well, right now in this country, there's more re- there's more people who identify self-identify as independents than Republicans. Yeah. Republicans are the third party. So when you see these, when you see President Trump saying, 88% of Republicans support me, well, big deal. That number is now <laughs> it's a subset, of, yeah. 88% of 28% of the country. And of that 28%, only 14% is going to vote. So if that's, you know, if that's a mandate, you know, give me a break. <laughs> um, so Well, uh, he's good with... Fritzen with the numbers. He makes him say whatever he wants him to say. Well, he makes them up. I mean, you know. I, this out, I've out experienced of, firsthand. Yeah, out of, out of whole cloth. And, um, you know, it's it's the classic, you know, there's, there's a phenomenon with presidents that um, go back, I think, to every president, which is, you know, when you're a staff person in the White House, the president talks to all sorts of people. He hears all sorts of information. A lot of it's junk. It's somebody's brother-in-law who told some big donor who called the president told right. him. And one of your jobs as a staff person is before the president goes out in public to get all that junk out of his head. Even if the, even if you think he believes it, you don't fight with him over whether it's true or not. You just say, we can't talk about that in public. In this administration, at first, I think there were some people who tried to get him to stop. They all got sidelined. And then the president would just go out and say anything. And now the people that he's surrounded himself are people feeding him this stuff. You yes. Know, you know, Mick Mulvaney and Stephen Miller who are picking up stuff on the dark net, you know, that is absurd and ridiculous. And they tell Trump and he goes out and repeats it. And his Internet trolls that, that feed him that stuff that he quotes on. But I. But uh, back to the question, can we – and I, I 
plead guilty. I, I took us off of it. Can we fix that part of the problem, getting the gerrymandering and getting voters interested in voting, making them vote more? I mean, that would seem to be a, a, a goal, a laudable effort. Those are, those are actually two separate questions. The ger- yes, they, the, it the, is. The gerrymandering is there's a lot of people working on this. And if you look at the state by state, a lot of states now, I think it's about 20, have gone to independent commissions to do uh, redrawing the lines. And that's the answer, that it's not independent in the Independent right. Independent committees, you know, appointed um, and that they work this out. And the courts, I think, have been pretty aggressive about throwing out ridiculous plans, not as aggressive. I mean, the Supreme Court just ruled on saying that political gerrymandering is still allowed. That would, That's a problem. But we're moving in the right direction there. It's not enough yet. On voting, you know, people, people only vote if they think it matters. And if they don't think it matters, there's nothing you can say to them. There's no ad you can run. There's no speech you can So get, the challenge to is to make them understand that it matters. Yes. And I think we're, you know, going into 2020, a lot of Americans think it matters. There's a lot of Trump voters that say there's no way we're letting those scoundrels um, infest the swamp again because Donald Trump has drained that swamp. And, you know, I, I don't know whether to cry, laugh, smack the person and say, I do all of the things. <laughs> um, but then there are a lot of people that say, this isn't my America. This, this, right. you know, listen, and guess what? I, I wasn't paying attention last time. And I, it's my obligation to get out next time and vote. I think you're going to see a massive increase in uh, the, the overall vote in 2020. Uh, And despite what I think the Trump's strategy will be, which is to so denigrate both brands of political parties that no one wants to vote, they just feel like it's dirty. I think people understand that what the stakes are. And the question will be which group gets out. And there will be questions of voter suppression, uh, hacking them. I mean, I know we had problems with hanging chads with uh, with with Bush, but it seems like a paper ballot at this point would be better than the well, the 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 being hacked. No, the real experts on voting um, are adamant on this subject that paper ballots. We have to go back to paper ballots because it's too easy to uh, manipulate electronic voting. The much bigger problem, though, is voter suppression. And, yes. And and what Republicans have been doing for a generation. I mean, you know, it's for a long time they didn't want minorities to have the right to vote. And then once they got the right to vote, they have worked overtime to make sure that they, they don't vote. They don't. And they make it harder. Um, they have, you know, all across the country, Republican secretaries of states have been purging uh, election rolls. It's, it's really scandalous. And, you know, the problem is... You know, there's only so much room in the news for scandals, and you know Trump sort of fills it. And, yeah, you know, think. Yeah, you you don't you don't. This doesn't get the attention it deserves. I agree with that. But going back to the scandal, one of the things I wanted to ask, I've been dying to ask you is how is now you're on the outside looking in now, but you were on the inside. How does this? Uh, you've seen both sides. How does this? differ from when you were spending time in the White House? What's different about this White House? Well, I mean, the, first off, the strategies of the two White Houses are completely... Well, let me start for this. The underlying uh, events are radically different. President Clinton made a horrendous personal decision, just 
awful decision. Uh, something he's owned up to. It didn't right away, which created problems. Um, uh, but it was a personal decision that involved, you know, him and, you know, his family and another person. Um, Donald Trump has used the U.S. government as an instrument for his own gain, whether it be financial or whether it be political. That is an, that is a pervasive abuse of presidential power. You cannot compare those two things, even though everybody will, because impeachment is the mechanism that we deal with these things. Secondly, the, the strategies were radically different. Uh, our strategy in the Clinton administration was, no matter what, the president didn't talk about this. Didn't matter right. what somebody threw at him. It didn't matter... What softball was thrown to him? He didn't talk about it because we felt like the way that we could stay in good standing with the public was making sure that they knew that he wasn't distracted, that they had a full-time president, that his only interest was them. Donald Trump, on the other hand, has demonstrated day after day that his only interest is himself. He's the whiner in chief. He, he can't stop complaining about this. He is obsessed with it. And, you know, Americans, you know, looking at his Twitter feed or watching the news or talking to their neighbors, I believe have to know that he's not putting his full uh, attention on being the president, being their president. Now, some people will blame the Democrats. His base will say the Democrats are making him do this. He's being harassed. Others will say, no, he brought this on himself. But the, you know, I, I sort of look... Um, and I will well, get. Can I I'll, I'll, I'll get. I'll, let me get this point. Yeah. I'll get. I'll get hate mail over this, but I look a little bit at Trump the way I look at Bernie Sanders, which is there. They couldn't be more ideologically different, but they both play the same game, which is the politics of grievance. What's wrong? Who's screwing you? Who's taking something That's from true. you? And I'll get you know, hate mail too, but it's, yeah. you're true. No, and and the reality is that's not where most Americans are. Most Americans are like, just give me a fair shot. Yeah. You know what? I don't think anyone's really screwing me, but you know, you know, I could use some help here. And you know, they're they're by and large, most of the country I think is optimistic, and thinks that things will work out for for them. I may be wrong. Maybe the the grievances, and this may be why you know I missed the election in 2016. Uh, it could be that the majority of the country now feels aggrieved, and it's just a question of how you get to them. I, I, I just don't think so. I don't think it's a majority. But to your point, two things. I don't think he puts in the time just because I've I've tweeted out photos of the Marine not being out in front of the West Wing. We all know. If the president's in the West Wing, that Marine's standing there. There are days that go, and then, you know, I, I got a BS response from, well, he was on his way. Well, no, he wasn't. He was, he, if, if he's there, the Marine is there. I can tell you from witnessing, he ain't in the West Wing that much. I'm there more than he is on any given day, and I don't run jack. Secondly, on Bernie Sanders, I, I look at Bernie Sanders as one of the reasons why the Democrats lost in 2016 coming out of I and I just remember this coming out of that. And I was in Philadelphia for the for the convention. There were a bunch of Bernie bros that were sitting there and they're going, well, why are we getting it? We need to get somebody that can beat Trump. I said he couldn't even beat Hillary. And I said, well, we're not going to vote for her. We're going to vote for Jill Steiner. We'll vote for Trump. And I think you're right, 
their politics of a grievance attracted some of the Bernie bros. Yeah, and, you know, let me, in defense of... Um, and I could be wrong. No, 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 yeah. I, you're never wrong. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. You got to talk to my wife. Yeah, 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 trust me, I'm, I'm going to, on my podcast, I'm going to tell everybody how wrong you were. But here, it's your microphone, you paid for it, you're right. Um, in defense of uh, Senator Sanders. No, but honestly. Uh, no, no, honestly, in, yeah. def- in defense of Sanders. I think he put his heart into campaigning for I Hillary. I do too. And I think he did what he could to get his but he's got a he's got a dedicated group of voters who just don't believe in the system. Okay, so let me restate it. Maybe it wasn't Bernie, but some of his supporters. Oh, no, no, you you you're, you're yeah. absolutely right. I think if, you know, you just look at Jill Stein's vote. Yeah. Um, you know, and no none of these people voting for Jill Stein knew who Jill Stein was. No, um, they had you know, no or clue. why she was hanging around with Putin in Moscow. You know, like, <laughs> I, I just thought I'd throw that out. But anyway, let's get back to who Jill Stein <laughs> isn't. Um, they were they were basically saying that uh, the the system sucks. I'm going to send a message. Well, they sent a message. They sent a message that Donald Trump's president, and we all have to live with it. Yeah, and I think that's coming. I didn't see that. To my point, I didn't see coming out of Philadelphia. A, a very unified Democratic front. And I, I think that was, I mean, when the Bernie bros, I remember the last night of the convention, they all stood out and some of them got arrested and they're screaming and yelling at reporters. They were screaming and yelling the same things at me that, that Trump supporters yeah. screamed. And they were screaming and yelling in the hall on a night yeah. that should have been the party coming together. And traditionally the party does come together. And it's not, you know, there were, you know, in 2008, Hillary supporters were not standing there yelling at Barack Obama. No. They were standing there cheering for Barack, Barack Obama. Obama. And, and Hillary was right there. And again, I think Sanders did what he needed to do. He's, he's just, he did come out, yeah. He's, he's just got uh, a group of knucklehead supporters that uh, are who care more about themselves and their so-called revolution than they care about the country. Yeah, yeah. I, I, one of them called me and said he was going to kill me, and I said, you're sitting in your mother's basement. You haven't had a job in five years. You're overweight. Nobody likes you. Uh, other than that, I'm scared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you think, uh, if you take a look at, um, what do you think the press needs to do that we're not doing in regards to Donald Trump? Well, Cause I, you've not, and, yeah. and to give background, you have, you, your parents worked in mm-hmm. the in the press, you have too. I have too, yeah. And so I, I, I value your opinion has merit because you've been on both sides. You know, I think that the press has really struggled um, to deal with his dishonesty. Um, and you know, I have at various times written or just got on my high horse. But you know, and and the easiest way to look at it is to look at you know the cable channels and the live coverage. It isn't the whole thing, right? But it's the easiest way to sort of take a piece of it and say, let's examine it. And I look at, um, I think the president has the right to be heard. Absolutely. And when he says something, the reporters have an obligation to tell the public what he said. But I think um, the concept of putting the president on the live airwaves is not a constitutional right. It's an implicit bargain between the press and the public that they represent and the president. And the bargain is the president says, I'm going to do everything I can to be honest. I may not always get it right. I may misspeak. But my end of the bargain is I'm going to be, I'm going to spin it, but I'm going to keep it to the facts, you know, and be honest about it. 
The process part of the bargain is we're going to do our best to report honestly what he said. President Trump is, has broken his promise, and I think he's forfeited his right to be on the airways live. Now, it's not right to say the president can't be heard, but what's the difference to the public? If the president says something at 11 o'clock in the morning and the cable networks don't report it till 12, nothing. No, the no, public not, hears it, but you'll never but, get a competitive press to do that. No, you you won't. But the the point is, that gives the press time to fact check what the president says and to fact check him in real time. To say we're about to, t- you know, we, the president spoke in the Oval Office today and he he talked about two subjects. We want to warn you that on these three issues, the president is not telling the truth, and then play it because when you say it after he's said it. The doesn't impression mean is, doesn't mean well, it yeah. means something, and I'll tell you that it in, means less. In de- in defense of um, MSNBC and CNN, I know they're taking this seriously. CNN, I don't know how often they do this, but I watched the other day, and they were they had live graphics ready. He would say, you know, the economy is growing at the best rate, and and a graphic would come up and say the economy is growing slower than Obama's, and you know, I don't, I'm making this right, up, but, right? And MSNBC has taken to. On certain hours, just not airing him. Um, I actually think that's wrong. I, I think that he he has a right to communicate with the public. He's the president of the United States. Yes, but he's lost the right to do it on live television because he lies too much. I, I have tried. None to, of this will happen. None no, of this will happen no, because no. there is a you know if 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 MSNBC and CNN and Fox and NPR and you know five other people got together in a room to discuss this, they'd be breaking the law. Well, and they'd be breaking the and it would never work. Law. And it would never work. And, you know, because someone would break it. To, to, you know, <laughs> Just, and that's why they, God I love bless them for it. But I love know. it when people say, "Well, if you all are so upset, why don't you just hold hands and walk out in unison?" And I go, "Whole oh, horse crap! That'll never happen." Somebody else. Will, I, I, look, no, I've always you, said, if you hold hands and walk out in unison. <laughs> They'll turn the press room into a pool yes. and, and a bar, <laughs> yeah. and they'll they'll it'll well, be the best day ever. <laughs> the bar might be not a bad okay. idea. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we need that on yeah. a daily basis. No, but someone else will step in, and I've always said, no, you'll get me out of there when they drag me out, which well, well they did, yeah. but that's <laughs> but I'm not leaving voluntarily because the president of the United States makes decisions. To your point, makes decisions that affect all of us, and we need to be there. Yeah, and you know, I'll I'll make the case, that, and I make it over and over again um, on a daily basis on Twitter. I think that it, it's just a crime that they're not doing the briefings anymore. Of course, for, it's a crime. For one, that it's in the White House interest to do the briefing. I, that's how you drive coverage. If you're smart about it, you know that's how you do it. Secondly, it is a you're um, preaching to the choir. It, it is an institution in our government that that arose for a reason. And served a function, and when you start pulling away these things that help guard our democracy, well, then our democracy can fall. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not so self-important or self or even Pollyannish to say, oh, because there's no press briefings, we won't have a democracy. It's a piece, it, and you, you start take pulling these pieces away. out of the foundation, yeah. and, it, and it eventually crumbles. Cut, yeah. And all you have to do is look back at history. I mean, all you have to do is have read a couple history books. To know how damaging the last, you know, three years have been, I just and how damaging th- they could be. I just keep thinking of John Adams. Once liberty is lost, it's lost forever. Yeah, you, you know, there's there's no do over. Um, yeah, in, in, in this game, it's that's fright. That's the frightening part to me is is they don't even seem to understand. First of all, 
compared to your time in the White House, I can tell you now, they're woefully understaffed. They don't have, and they have no one of quality in the upper press, in the echelons where you were. Now, they have some guys that are in, in, in some young men and young women in the lower press, you know, the Wranglers, and so they're working their butts off. And I went the other day to an event on the South Lawn, and, and I remember going to an event like that when Bush was in office, when you guys were in office. There'd be a dozen people, you know, helping us. They had three. They don't have anyone. He's his own press agent. He doesn't know how to drive that type of press coverage, and it's it's hurting. I think it's hurting him as well as hurting well, what, us. What he knows is, and this was something that he perfected as a developer in New York, he knows how to draw attention to himself. Yeah. But it's not always positive attention. It's just attention. And he, you know, I, it, I think... You know, he's still operating under the same rules as he was when it, when the most important thing in the world was being on page six in the New York Post. But if people are talking about me, then I'm successful. Um, that's Boy, not does he a, have daddy yeah. issues. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not necessarily the way it works in politics. Um, I will say this, that his ability to suck up all the oxygen during the primaries uh, in 2016 served to kill his opponents. Oh, there, yeah. was, there was just nobody who could um, command the attention and get the airtime. And, you know, they all died on the vine because no one was paying attention to them because Trump was the story every day. Yeah, he makes sure he's the story yeah, every and day. The, and the story isn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily a good one every day, but it was about Trump. Talking about oxygen a little bit, did Adam Schiff make a bad mistake by saying what he said and giving Trump oxygen to say that Schiff made up stuff about him? Oh, I don't think that I don't think that was the issue. I think I think Schiff made a mistake in um, uh, when he answered the question about whether the whistleblower had had contact with him or the committee when, in fact, he did. I mean, I think he, he answered it technically when he should have just said they talked to my staff. I, I didn't talk to him. We didn't know what was in the complaint. And he got caught out on that. And the problem is when you're the prosecutor, Every little mistake gets magnified. Well, um, yeah. So I don't. I, I'm not a, in the school of thought that thinks that his opening statement um, mattered much. Tr- that just got under Trump's skin. I do think he gave some um, ammunition to his opponents with, you know, with not being as transparent as he sh- as he should have been there. But you know what? This is a long game, uh, and and he's the best the Democrats have as far as prosecuting this case. And you know, Pelosi's lucky to have him. Where do you? Th- how long do you think it'll be before we have an impeachment, and before there's a trial in the Senate? I think uh, Democrats are going to continue to build the case. They don't need cooperation uh, to build some of the case. They do need cooperation to get the whole picture. They have enough of the picture now to bring the articles. I mean, it's the the fact of the matter is, the um, memorandum on the phone call. Gives you what you need. You know, it's just filling in. His, his own admission no. gives you what you need. And, and it's just. And then he did it on the South Lawn. And yeah. I'm telling Joe, he was five feet away from me when he doubled down and said, and I've asked China to go investigate him. Well, and, and that wasn't, that wasn't, um, the, for him, that wasn't a mistake. That was his strategy. This, this oh, is, yeah, it was a strategy it, to yeah. mitigate what is like, look, I do it all the time. It's no big deal. No, it's his strategy to say there's nothing wrong with doing it. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's right. No big deal. I, I mean, what he was saying under his breath was, I can't believe I admitted to this, but now that I've admitted it, I got to pretend it's no big deal. Right. And I do it in other places. Exactly. And, yeah. That's so. You that and I was, are saying the same thing. That, yeah. that was a, a strategic um, uh, move on his part. Um, but. 
you know, there. I the the interesting part to change the subject a little bit. The really interesting part for me watching all of this and their response is looking at the campaign, uh, the re-election campaign, because that's that's what's driving their message right now. Yeah. They're spending tens of millions of dollars a week. Maybe that's that might be hyperbole. They're spending millions of dollars a week on social media platforms, you know, on cable. And that they have a very clear message in those. The, you, you know, coming out of Trump's mouth, coming out of the Hill, you've got multiple messages. None of it makes sense. And you, if you're a Republican, you don't know what to hold on to. If I'm a Republican, I just want to watch their ads and mimic that. And their, their ad right now is a very simple message, which is Donald Trump's a tough guy. He will break rules to get things done for you. He'll break the rules of calling Ukraine. He'll break the rules of calling China. He'll he'll involve foreign. He'll do whatever it takes, but he's doing it for you. That's not a bad message, given the the big pile of steaming crap they have sitting on the South Lawn right now. Yeah, but that's that's a message uh, born from that big pile of steaming. Yes, crap. absolutely. I mean, but but that's what that's what politics is not. A big pile of steaming crap. Um, no, no. But <laughs> politics is not, you know, building a message around the way you want the world to be. It's how do you build something that based on what the world is um, and the reality you face. And but you know, when the rules that you break are the Constitution, I kind of tend to think that if people were more aware of that, that might actually. Or am I being Pollyannish? <laughs> a, a little bit. I mean, I think. You know, the majority of the country— Or if they knew that, that Trump—his actual message is he's not breaking the rules to help you. He's breaking the rules to help himself. Well, it, so you, you've just put your finger on an important piece. Uh, this is what the Democrats' challenge is. Yes. I think, I think people understand that Donald Trump breaks the rules. I don't think it's clear to a lot of Americans why. And the Democrats have to prosecute the case that he's doing it to enrich himself and to protect his power and to enhance his power. And the people that the one group that he never even thinks about is you, the voters. There's your commercial. No. And this that is that's why I think that's why Elizabeth Warren is enjoying the success she is, because she is doing in a way that's more positive than Bernie is doing. Right. She is saying that there are special interests that are screwing you every single day. And Trump is just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so I think this idea of um, prosecuting a case on corruption and abuse of power is going to be uh, the strongest message for Democrats. Now, who the strongest messenger is, that's what we got to figure out. There you go. When we come back, a few final thoughts. Joe, I want to. I, I, I really appreciate it. It was a very interesting, very stimulating conversation. I enjoy every moment of it. I, I have two final questions for you. Whatever the questions are, I am taking one shot at Dan Snyder. So think about your questions but, carefully. I, I was going there. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I, in fact, you made me forget my two final questions. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. Yeah, you, you're very good. Uh, <laughs> well, let's go there. Uh, what's what was harder, uh, the NFL or working for a president? 
Well, I mean, the stakes are so much higher working for a president, but the— Well, I thought uh, you were going to say the stakes were higher working for no, the NFL. No, 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 no. <laughs> but the, but the, the NFL is, um, uh, you know, at its heart, a trade association run by 31 billionaires. Yeah, um, that's— And I have to tell you, um, a lot of them are accomplished, you know, men and women of high character who were a pleasure to deal with. And then and, there's Dan and then Snyder. There's Dan Snyder. Uh, Tell then, me about no, that. <laughs> no, then there's people like Dan Snyder who just you know are are um, you know he he's the Donald Trump of um, of the NFL. And, oh my God, that's exactly what I've said about yeah, him. Yeah, and you know it's you know who who why waste your energy talking about a loser because that's <laughs> that's what he is a loser. Um, well, but, we can see that in the Redskins. They, he's no, destroyed and, that franchise. And the one thing, you know, listen, I'm not a, I didn't take the job at the NFL because I'm, you know, an avid fan or a football expert. I mean, I, I played basketball in high school. I didn't play football. Um, but one of the things I learned just observing is there is a direct relationship between how an owner manages his team and puts it together and the success on the field. Yeah. And say what you want. You know, if you're outside of New England, you probably hate Robert Kraft. Cheating bastard. <laughs> cheating bastard, all of those things. It starts with him. Yeah. And it starts with who he commits to and, you know, his ability to keep the best talent and create a culture. You know, there are players who will go up and play in New England for less money that they can make, you know, in New York or L.A. or Chicago because it's a culture of winning. And then there are teams that struggle um, because they can't find their way and don't create the culture. And then there are teams, I think like the Redskins, who reflect a, the negative culture of their owner. And, you know, it's, you know, there's not a lot of people that, you know, I, I'm, from, I'm from New York. I grew up a Knicks fan. No, no superstar wants to play for the Knicks because it's a culture of losing. They want to play for a culture. They want to play for Golden State. Right. Or they want to play. They want to go down and play. You know, in you know, for the Clippers or the Rockets because they have built a culture, and that starts with the owners. Yeah, and that's we clearly haven't seen that in in Washington. No, it, it just breaks my heart to watch them lose. It me too. Except when they're playing the Cowboys, when I just hope it's a scoreless tie and the, ra- <laughs> and the ratings suck. <laughs> besides that, I don't, besides that, I don't have an opinion. Other than that, well, let me ask, the one question I've asked. Uh, Many people on, on on this show in the in the last years, do you think Donald Trump has done irreparable harm to our country, or can we spring back from this? Is it, are we more resilient than it appears? There's nothing inevitable about our democracy, and the people who argue that we are inevitably the indispensable nation in the world don't know what they're talking about. Um, they don't know. They're not students of history that have not looked at cultures that people at, in their uh, at their pinnacle thought would dominate the world forever. Uh, they haven't looked at the ascendancy of China going on in the world vis-a-vis the United States. I, this is one of the reasons that I, I don't have a candidate for Democrats in 2020. But I actually believe Joe Biden's message is the strongest. So the, and that and, message and, is? And his challenge is he's got to prove he's the right messenger. That His message is we are strong enough and resilient enough to handle four years of Donald Trump. We're probably not strong or resilient enough to handle eight years and that the damage will be permanent uh, if he is reelected. And I'm, I'm pretty much in that camp. Um, it's I don't I just historically don't buy um, 
the idea that somehow, you know, we're, we're the country that always gets it done. We always have. We have always met the challenge. We have never seen anyone like Donald Trump. And uh, four years is enough. Eight years is, you know, it, we, we may survive it. We may not. And just the prospect It'd be more of difficult. The, yeah, the prospect of the may not should motivate people uh, who care about this country and care about our way of life and the way we approach things and the way we act on the world stage. You know, it's just, you know, look at uh, the president just this week abandoning, you know, our Kurdish allies who have fought with us to defeat ISIS. Trump didn't defeat ISIS. Right. Kurds did. Yeah, the Kurds. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it, it, there's no accident that they're holding the thousands of prisoners. Um, and know, those they, prisoners, what do you think is going to happen to them? Well, they're going to reconstitute ISIS. They're gonna, there's going to be no one to go. Or they're going to be they're, executed. No, they're not going to be executed. Uh, you uh, don't think so? No, because they will. It's, it's, uh, it's not what Turkey cares about. That's true. What Turkey cares about is wiping out. Uh, the Kurds. And, you know, the Kurds are going to do, you know, their priority now is to take on, you know, their mortal enemy, uh, the Turks. And, you know, they're going to leave the store unminded, you know, with, you know, 10,000 ISIS fighters and their families and their supporters. And what a mess. And this is all self-inflicted. You know, a, a president who either had a brain or had a staff that he listened to, this wouldn't have happened. But this is a president who gets on the phone and decides, uh, I'm going to make a deal. And he deals away our allies. And we, our standing in the world goes down. Our our safety goes down because ISIS could be reconstituted. And he's unwilling to listen to anyone. Where do you see us a year from now? In a very, very ugly but very, very important campaign. Uh, and, you know, I think everybody just needs to buckle up and to... Um, just remember that they have a brain, and when they hear something, think about it. And if it's if it doesn't seem right to you, then it's not true. Well, there are those who will listen to it. And it seems right to them, even though it's not. I don't know how you reach them. Well, I don't think I don't think Democrats need to reach them. They're they're in many ways lost um, and are not coming back in this election cycle. But they don't, they don't represent the majority of Americans, just like the Democrats who are on Twitter don't represent the majority of Democrats. It's, you know, and, and the candidate that looks at this and says there's a wide swath of uh, uh, people whose socioeconomic circumstances are different and varied and their view and their ideology are different, but there are some things that bind that group together. One of them is, you know, being proud of your country again and being proud of your president and dealing with integrity and honesty, that's, that's Civil how discourse would be nice. Exactly. Uh, but, but we're not going to, you know, we're not going to produce that leader through polite civil discourse. It's going to be ugly, um, but it's going to be worth it for who, whatever Democrat leads, um, uh, you know, the, the party, you know, go, to take on Trump. Because, you know, as we were just saying, I don't know that we can afford another four years. I... I don't know if I could. I, I don't know if I could last in there another four years. I'll tell you that it's 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 rough on a daily basis. It really is. It's you know it's rough to watch. You know and um, and you know I have some sense of what it's like in the building and um, you know it's uh, it's it, I you know I think you know sometimes I say it's sad, but it's not sad. It's tragic. It's Tra tragic. It's a, it's, it's a damn it's, Greek it's, tragedy. Yeah, it, but it's tragic that these 
norms and these guardrails, as I like to put it, um, that were built up over time to preserve and protect our democracy have crumbled so quickly. They were That was shocking te- to me. Which tells you they were never as strong as we thought they were. Uh, and that one reality uh, uh, show host could come and crumble them tells you how fragile the democracy is and tells you what, you know, what what a daunting task the next president's going to have. That was also a John Adams line who said that uh, democracies usually kill themselves. They're usually... Uh, they usually don't last that long, and they snuff themselves out. Yeah, you know, and it, everybody loves the Churchill line, which is democracy is a terrible way to run the government, but better than every better, better than every other system. <laughs> that's, that's you know, they're all right. So the question I I have to ask you to end on I I know I've I've asked it several times: stones or beetles? Uh, I it's I'm going to answer it this way: beetles early. Yeah. Okay. Then stones, you okay. know, as as an adult, and then through having small children now and the magic of Sirius XM, they love the Beatles. So we listen almost exclusively to the Beatles and the car again. So I am right back with the Beatles. The Beatles. John Paul George Ringo. That, I'm, you know, I'm I'm a John guy. You know, it's, it's like, his birthday today. It is. Today it's, is I, his birthday. I will never. It's one of those. You know, you have. You know, you probably have the ability to have ten moments in your life etched in your brain. And watching Monday Night Football when they came on and said John Lennon, and I was in New York. I was probably two miles as the oh, crow wow. flew from it, um, and just watching it and thinking. Well, that can't be true. I, that's, that's exactly I mean, that, somebody's making this up. Who would kill up. John Lennon? Exactly, and you know, it's just you know, it's. Uh, but I, I I hate to not give definitive answers, but honestly, I have changed and then changed back. Well, that's that's fair. Yeah. I remember. I the, was for it before I was against it. <laughs> there was a great line by Lennon that I think would uh, be appropriate for John Lennon. It's from. Um, one thing you can't hide is when you're crippled inside. He says you can tell a lie until you die, but one thing you can't hide is when you're crippled inside. Yep. Well, we we we're afflicted with that as a country right now. Okay. So, what's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? Two. <laughs> no, it's African or European. I always ask that one too. Actually, kids who have come to work for me, they always ask, "Is there anything else you want to know?" And I always throw the Monty Python line at them and see if they can pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I tried it the other day with my kids when I said, you know, there are three rules. And they said, well, what's the third rule? And I said, there is no third, third rule. <laughs> and they didn't get it, but I had a big laugh. So there, there you go. Well, listen, uh, Joe, I really appreciate it. Uh, come back? I will definitely come back. Uh, thank you very much. The name of the show is Just Ask the Question. We tried to just ask the question. I hope we asked a few. <laughs> I, hope we, I hope we hit some issues that uh, are, are important and a few fun ones. So come back and join us next time. I am Brian Karam. Thank you for joining us.